It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Welcome back for part two with Ryan Holiday, best-selling author and modernizer of the incredibly useful Stoic philosophy. My mission in life is to help people play the game of life well. It really is a game that you can win, but winning isn't about money, fast cars, or accolades. It is about earning your own respect and living a life of meaning. To that end, there are few things more powerful than the ideas that Ryan has popularized and that we discuss here in part two. From integrating your emotions without becoming weak to avoiding a fragile ego and the blind conformity that stop so many people from reaching their full potential and a whole bunch of other things, including the surprising impact of social media, trauma, and how to avoid becoming a parody of yourself. For more episodes just like this, be sure to subscribe to our ad-free feed on Apple Podcasts You'll get access to hundreds of archived episodes and bonuses not available anywhere else. Now, without further ado, I'm Tom Bilyeu, and I bring you Ryan Holiday. You yourself, though, have said a lot of people are, uh, a lot of people have kids, but not a lot of people are parents. Sure. I'll tell you a story, a flight child story. So, and this is an international flight. I am on my way to England. I am in coach, bro. This is not current me. This is past me. And I am going to see Lisa, yeah. uh, who lives in England at the time. And this little kid, I'm waiting in line to check my bags. And there's this family with this child. The kid's probably, I don't know, four or five. And he's losing his mind. Yeah. Losing his mind, throwing himself on the luggage, knocking it over, shrieking, wailing. And they, they don't even say anything to him. And I was like, whoever has to sit next to that kid, oh my God, I feel yeah. terrible. Okay. This. Uh huh. So get on the plane, you know, whatever, an hour and a half later, and I'm, I'm watching them come on the plane and they're like coming toward them. I'm like, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God. Ends up sitting next to me. Now these motherfuckers, Ryan holiday, it goes, there's, these are the four rows, right? So goes, uh, dad, mom, child, me. I'm like, I'm sorry. What? Like it should go parent, child, parent, me. Uh, but they put him next to me and he is losing his mind. Yeah. Like losing his mind. Like what it, did somebody poke him with a, like a poker, like yeah. a hot poker? Like he's, he's just really going bananas. I, I just can't fathom. Yeah. And they don't say a word, not to him, not to me. And then partway through the flight, I don't know, we're probably up in the air, 30 minutes with him shrieking. And I'm like in, in, at the time I would have said like my Taoist pose. I was just like, it's all good. Yeah. I'm going to be totally chill. The little kid, nothing you can do. I can't go anywhere. There's nowhere else for me to sit. And he puts his head on my lap, holds my hand and goes to sleep. Doesn't say a word. Not hi, I'm Timmy, nothing. And I'm just like, the parents don't say anything. And they let this child fall asleep on a stranger. Yeah. And in that moment, I was like, 
now, bro. Parent, like, yeah. th this is partly the parents are like, the fact that they didn't put him in between them. Yeah, that's an odd like, choice. And that he felt comfortable with me. He leaned on me. Yeah. He didn't lean on them. And so I was like, whoa, like this kid does not feel comfortable with them for yes. whatever sure. reason and does with a total stranger. And then he ends up being an angel through the whole flight, man. It was surreal. Well, you realize with kids that 90% of it is hungry or tired, right? Like it's one of those two things. And so one of the things I've taken out of being a parent is just so much more empathy for other people, period, right? Like it's like, I know my kid is fundamentally decent and good. So when they're not being good, right? The, the expression is like, your kid's not giving you a hard time. Your kid is having a hard time. That's nice. Right? But this is also true for all people in the world, right? Like, you know your kid is acting this way because you skipped nap or, you know, um, they got woken up in the middle of the night or whatever. But maybe that's why the person in front of you in line is being rude, right? And, and so the practice of looking for a reason or looking for something to understand or pity even in other people is a practice I've taken out of being a parent. And it's helped me in the world, right? To just understand people are going through stuff. Kids especially are going through stuff. And then it's hard to be them. And so, yeah, to take from your story, like, man, what, what must it be like to be a kid who's not comfortable around their parents. That's awful. And that's not their fault. That's not something that they can do anything about. And so how can I, I can't change that. I have no legal recourse or it's not appropriate for me to intervene in that situation, but I can let that open me up, make me better, more understanding, more patient, more understanding of both this individual and then also all individuals. And so I, I think being a parent has changed me in that way. It's made me more empathetic, more patient, more understanding, more present, you know, um, in, in the sense that I don't extrapolate everything out or go, if I just let this person cut me off in traffic, well, then am I the kind of person that just the world walks all over and does what, you know, it's like none of this matters. This is an individual instance, which is forgettable in the bigger picture of things. And so I'm going to treat it as such, or I'm going to go, this person is going through something. This person is struggling. This person is not winning. They may be cutting me off here, but I have a way better, I'm getting a way better end of this deal and that I get to be me and they have to be them. And that, that has helped me just as a human being in the world. Where do you draw the line though? How do you know that that isn't just cope and you're not really being a doormat? Like, do you have a line? I Yeah, I mean, I think that there is some line, but it's almost always never the thing that you are getting triggered by or upset by. Do you know what I mean? Like, are you ever gonna meet this person again? Uh, is anyone watching? Um, you know, how fragile matter, are right? your values, you know, that like uh, letting this thing go? I don't know that people's values are fragile. I don't think they define them. I don't think people know what their values are. Like, when are you being petty yeah. and when are you having a standard? Yeah. Look, I think about this as a writer, right? Like you get your notes back. Mm. And my first reaction is always like, who the fuck are you, <laughs> you know, um, or how dare you, you know, because like, I'm good at what I do. I've slaved over this. 
and you're going to return it to me like covered in red ink. Um, and then, you know, I sit with it and I think about it. And with time, I come to accept that actually the vast majority of the notes have merit. Some of them are incorrect in substance, but they're in the ballpark of something being wrong. And I'll, I'll take, I'll take the fact that this was flagged and I'll come up with my own solution to it. And then there's the other percentage of, uh, of those notes, which I have to have the confidence and the sense of self or the, the sense of what I'm trying to accomplish to go, you think I should cut this chapter, but actually this is the most important chapter of the book. And without it, none of this other stuff works or without it, it doesn't mean to me what I want the project to, to mean. And so I'm going to be comfortable, just reject, you know, like, so you accept some of the things and you reject other things and, and knowing what, yeah, what's important and what isn't. I mean, that's the, that's the hardest thing to do in life. Um, you know, being the person who is principled and strict about what matters and what's right and wrong is important, but also so is compromise and collaboration, right? And I think most successful, talented people probably are already over-indexed for control and like wanting things to be a certain way and having a strong opinion about that. You're almost always needing to correct in the other direction. Mm. Yeah, this is this is where a lot of this stuff gets really complicated. And I think people struggle is they don't take the time to even mark out what their value system is. Yeah. Um, when you when you don't have a target, you're gonna miss it every time. And so this is why phase one of uh mindset trying to make your life better is always gonna be defining that stuff, like actually yeah. writing down what are your beliefs, what are your values, um, so that you have something to aim at. Yeah. Um, and you know, when I think about where we started this conversation and where I want all of this to go there, there is a milieu that people are in now in the modern world where we don't really know what to aim at. Things get very distorted on social media. Um, the way that information, in fact, here's, here's a, a concept I'm trying to get my head around. Maybe you can help me. There's something about the rapidity with which ideas transmit now that I think has a deranging effect okay. where something will start as um, a good idea and it rapidly becomes like a cliche and then it becomes like a postmodern, um, oh God, what do they call it? Deconstruction, you know, of all of it. And so then like everything becomes cringe and you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. there, there suddenly isn't a, a sincerity to wanting to yeah, be or, better or be good. Or there's some term of value like, uh, or, or, or of worth like gaslighting. And now mm. everything is gaslighting, right? right? It's, it gets used and used and repeated and, and its meaning stretches, uh, its definition stretches to the point where it has no definition. It has no meaning. And so, yeah, I agree. It's, it's, it's difficult. Everything has a label. Everything has a term. Everything actually means this, or then someone's saying it means the opposite of this. And it's very difficult to keep 
to get and keep your bearings. And and so when I was trying to be empathetic to like what it's like to be a young man today, I that's one of the things I go like, it's disorienting, it's confusing. And one of Seneca's great lines is, uh, if you don't know what port you are sailing towards, no wind is favorable. And I think his, his other line is, he says, you know, uh, you're on this path. And he says, you know, tranquility and peace and greatness is, is, is the sense of that path. And he says, not being distracted by the paths that crisscross yours. He says, even from people who are hopelessly lost. So if you don't know what your values are, if you don't know what you stand for, if you don't know what you're trying to get, and then you're just scrolling on your phone and the algorithm is just serving you up what's most engaging, what's most provocative, what other people are looking at, it's really easy to go down rabbit holes, to get red-pilled or whatever that is. And you don't want that to happen. It's disorienting. It's, it, 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 it can take you very far afield from where you want to get. Where I think another great example is like, if you don't know what you're working towards and why you're doing it, like you don't know where you're trying to end up as a human being, you just default towards what makes the most money, what other people respect the most, you know, what everyone else is doing, what's popular right now. And that's probably not a good long-term prescription for either success or happiness. Like, Why not? Well, first off, if everyone's doing it, the chances of there being... Uh, long-term viability in it, it's probably low, right? And most of the things that you do in life solely optimizing for the financial return, you know, are probably not the right things and it's probably not actually sufficient motivation or purpose, you know? Um I talk to people and they're like, you know, uh, I want to write a book. I go, oh, that's awesome. Well, why? Well, it'll be good for my speaking business. Or, you know, oh, like I want to be famous. Or, oh. People actually say that? Yeah. I, or they, they don't say it. It's when you, when you ask, it's when you start to look at what they're evaluating that success as. It's not, I wrote something that matters. I did my best. You know, I made something that had real impact there. They're just thinking, how many copies did it sell? How big was my advance? Was my advance bigger than some other person that I heard got an advance? And those are not great North Stars, right? A great North Star is, this is what I was put here to do as a human being. No one has done this thing before. This needs to exist. This will help people, right? And... If if um if all you're doing what you're doing for is money, the chances of you ever getting enough are very low. And the chances of you meeting someone who makes you feel very small for what you have is very high. You know, you could work your whole life, be incredibly successful at what you do, and meet someone who made in one day what you've made in your entire life. You know, you could meet someone who inherited more money than you will ever have. And then are you going to let, if if the money was why you did it and what constitutes success, then all of that was just taken from you. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, man. So uh, I live in a ridiculous house yeah. that I uh, earned 
And I can still fuck myself up with a single YouTube search of like the coolest houses in America. And you're yeah. like, oh, those houses are cool, man. Mine's like, whatever. It, it is so ridiculous. It is so self-evident to me that it's ridiculous. But nonetheless, I'm like, wow, there really is like some bizarre lizard part of my brain that cannot help but compare myself to others. Yeah. And whenever that comparison comes up empty, like it, it, it takes conscious effort to reorient myself. But it's in those moments that I realize if I did not have a North Star that I can write down and be like, this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I choose to judge myself against. Uh, I would be in despair. Yeah. And th I'm very grateful that I learned quite early that money didn't change my insecurities. Sure. And that you my- You can't fix external, you can't fix internal feelings or inadequacies or doubts or insecurities with external accomplishments Blacks. or accumulations. Just will not happen. And it is- very hard to recognize that without going through it yourself, which is the sort of hilarious thing about life. But once you learn that, then you can start putting yourself on a better path. But my punchline is there is a better path, but no one's going to end up on it by accident. Yeah. You know, Gabor Mate, right? Mm -hmm. All right. So I want to go back to the idea of addictions and how people end up getting trapped because if I can get trapped that easily in comparing my house to yeah. other people, uh, I know how easily other people are going to be getting trapped. Sure. Gabor Mate talks about addictions in life. They are covering up a trauma, just yeah. period, end of story. Yeah. I don't know that I agree with that. Hmm. I think that there might be something deranging in culture. And look, I think life has always been hard. So I don't, I'm not saying this is a uniquely difficult time. I just think it's difficult in a unique way, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so no matter, in fact, I, I would rather be born now than any other time in human history by a country mile, sure. despite AI and all of the insecurities and everything that we're going yeah. through now. But having said that, I do think that there are these sort of weird deranging things that lead to things like death of despair, drug addiction, sure. OnlyFans porn, ah, yeah. um, social media, doom scrolling. My question is, what is that thing? Like, do you subscribe to Gabor Mate? This is trauma and you're just trying to ma uh, mask it. Or is there something else going? And to really complicate this question, do you know about Ibogaine? No. Okay, so we'll get to that in a okay. minute. But so what, what do you think leads people I, I to these modern addictions? Both explanations are probably simultaneously true, which is that everyone has some kind of hole or trauma that they're trying to address and fill. And then we also have biological urges, an evolutionary desire to accumulate, to experience, to do, that it makes sense that evolution would turn on and evolution never really had to worry about how and why to turn them off, right? Like um, evolution would create in an Alexander the Great a desire to conquer, right? Because this would have all sorts of benefits to one's uh, evolutionary success. But would it have a reason to ever make him feel enough, right? Uh, to go, this is sufficient. I have gone far enough. No, not really, because for probably most of evolutionary history, you died before you ever got to that point. Also, that guy that has that push, like, 
you're just going to keep going. I not a conqueror, obviously, but in business, I have that same sense of it's just, and I don't think this is bad, but it's never enough. And you, I've heard you quote, I forget what language it is, what language it is. I think it might be Haitian where it's like beyond the mountain is only more mountains. Yeah. Well, I think that's true in life in, in not just about like, uh, opportunities. It's also just, there's always difficulties, right? I think to me, that's what that proverb means. But I, I think even with an Alexander the Great, there's the, hey, this is why one is compelled to become a conqueror. But then also he's got daddy and mommy issues. Uh, his dad is king. His mom is ambitious. His dad neglects him. His mom smothers him with affection. It creates a, co- a potent cocktail that creates an extraordinary person, but also probably a person that you would not actually want to trade places with. Mm. And so the work of my life has been, look, I have this set of skills. I have these interests. I have these ambitions. The same time, how can I try to be as good as I am capable of being without being a slave to those things? How can I be a normal person inside of those things. And by normal, I, I, I mean sort of what we were talking about earlier. Can you be good and great at the same time, right? Um, have you heard the term an art monster? Yeah, from you, but right. yes. It's easy to be an art monster in the sense that you turn off all the other things and you only leave the drive, the ambition, the, the talent on. And I think that's that's not just a an unbalanced way to be. I don't I don't think when you look at the lives of those people, you're like, it's fun to be them. There's a there's a that's... Roman general named Marius who was like the conqueror of conquerors. He was the Rome's leading politician. And Seneca says about him, he says, you know, Marius commanded armies, but ambition commanded Marius. And his his point was that. The end of the day, this guy's not actually in charge. Like the 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 demon is in charge, or the drive is 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 uh, is in charge. And I think self sufficiency, be operating under your own power, that's a that's a better place to come from. I think it actually creates better work. I think it creates less harmful consequences to the the outside world. Right, Alexander the Great, Napoleon, like. Europe is littered with the bones of the victims of those men, right? Mm-hmm. Like their inability to to just deal with the fact that dad was never proud of them sacrifices hundreds of thousands of people in these pointless wars, right? It's not a consequenceless decision to be insatiable as much as you think it is. It hurts other people. What's the barometer? So if we're trying to craft a North Star, if I'm a young guy and I'm trying, I'm, I'm listening to this debate, I've got Andrew Tate yeah. on one shoulder, I've got Marcus Aurelius on the other shoulder. Um, what's the barometer? Like Andrew Tate has Bugattis and women and uh, is having sex with whoever he wants, theoretically has multiple kids all over the place and women that are willing to stay with him even though he's unfaithful and he's a high value guy and makes tons of money and the at one point the most searched person on planet earth. Um, but you know why he's the most searched person on planet earth? You know why his stuff blew up online, right? It's not because it's good. His stuff blew up because he started a, 
pyramid scheme that incentivized young kids, mostly like young boys, to upload hundreds of his clips to the internet. So he makes viral content that is provocative and challenging and, you know, sometimes speaks to hard truths that people do need to hear. A lot of it also confirms biases and prejudices and sort of plays to our lowest common denominator, you know. And wicked narcissism. Yeah, which which is attractive and and uh do you think narcissism is attractive or just plays reads as confidence and I, that's I, I think it reads as confidence but it it's also there's there's a re, we like bad boys, we like people who say effed up things that, you know, uh we wouldn't say we we like mischievousness. We like antiheroes, right? So he makes content that people want, but then he took hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars of other people's monies, uh, uh, other people's money, and then in exchange tricked them into propagating his content, mm. right? And so, like, I think one of the tricky things about narcissists and egotists is that. It's not an accurate picture of reality, you know. I'm sure you have. I've met some extremely wealthy, extremely successful, extremely powerful people. I don't see them driving Bugattis. I don't see them bragging about how many people they're sleeping with. Um, I don't see them anywhere, actually. Right? Like most of the powerful, the truly powerful people in the world want to keep as low profile as possible, Tell right? Tell to your boy, Elon Musk. <laughs> Homeboy is like out there. I, I would uh, argue that something broke in that guy's brain and really? that I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to trade places with that guy for all the money in the world. Um, you would get all the money in the world if you trade a place <laughs> with him. So it's true. Uh, but I, mean, I don't want to lose sight yes, of the yeah, barometer. Of course, What's but, the barometer? So but, if it isn't money and women, yeah. then it's? Yeah, it's... Are you making, I, I, think, I think a couple things. I sort of evaluate my life or measure my life built around a couple things. One, am I realizing my potential? Like what the unique DNA, circumstances, experience, talents I have. Am so get I, as good as you can possibly get. Yes. What is the thing you were put here to do? And can you extend that out as far as it can reasonably go, right? Um, Am I making a positive impact on the world, right? Like if everyone was doing what I was doing, uh, would, that, would that work, right? You know what I mean? Like it, it, am, am I part of the problem or am I part of the solution? That's kind of one of the metrics that I look at, right? Like, But even that makes a huge leap uh, around this barometer. So making the world a better place. So just to keep challenging this idea, I don't know if he actually believes it or again, if he's playing a character, but uh, Tate is going to tell you that he has made the lives of countless people better. Sure. But if in if it balances out with the fact that you keep women locked in a house and, uh, you know, take a percentage of their sex work earnings, sex, you know, sex worker earnings, you know, 
You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, dot com slash impact theory. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. See, that's where I think we can get really specific. So the the thing that makes Tate all an illusion for me and why I just do not encourage people to listen or to follow that path is that the the thing that he monetizes is vice laden in and of itself and so when you think about okay like is OnlyFans going to be the thing that you want to help people get better at knowing that the people that are using it are in the darkest place possible in their life? Yeah. And so if I step back and look at that, that's where I go, okay, my internal barometer is um, take, for instance, what we did at Quest. It was like, 
I was showing up every day for my mom and my sister. They had been morbidly obese my entire life. I wanted to make food that they could choose based on taste and it happened to be good for them. And I made sacrifices that cost me a lot of money to make sure that if they ate those products that they really were gonna be moving in a better direction. And that was hugely important to me and it became the way that I really looked at things. Same thing at impact theory, right? I've always said, look, I'll slide to neutral because yeah. I want everything that we put out to be empowering, but I would slide to just entertainment if that meant I could avoid going out of business. But I would never go to the point where I felt like if somebody takes the advice, and this is just how I think about it. If you take the advice of one of our mentor characters, it should make your real life better. Yeah. And if if that is anything other than neutral, yeah. like you're not going to see me do stories about somebody where if you were to emulate their behavior, your life is going to be trash. So at some point, like you have to have a thing that is like, okay, this is my barometer of whether I'm doing the thing that I wanted to do. In fact, here's how I explain it in business. Boys and girls at home, hear me when I say that you have to, when you're trying to do something grand with your life, you must call your shot and say, I'm trying to do this thing. Yeah. And this is the metric by which I will judge whether or not I have done that thing. You need to say it ahead of time so that you don't fool yourself and start bullshitting yourself about whether you're doing that thing or not. Because it's very easy if you're failing and you didn't lay out a metric, "Ah, am I really failing? Because I didn't have a metric. You know, so for me, it's like impact theory is here so that if you take our advice, the advice of our mentor characters on the entertainment side or in these interviews, uh, that it will actually improve your life as determined by that formula that I laid out for fulfillment. Yeah. I think this is another part of it. It's not just am I part of the problem or the solution, but like, am I acting with honesty, good ethics, uh, decency? Uh, you know, how, how am I doing what I'm doing? Right. I, another problematic character, but I was at American Apparel for a long time. And I remember someone was proposing to Dove that he could like move the factory overseas and, you know, make more money or something. And he said, if all I cared about was making money, I would have become a drug dealer. And I remember thinking about that because it's true. Like you chose what you chose because you cared about something other than just making money, right? Or you would have chosen the kind of things that make the most money, right? Like, for me to choose to be an author, I've already made a decision that like making lots of money is not my number one priority. And then to write about an obscure school of ancient philosophy, I've now doubled down on this choice, right? I'm not saying I can't be successful at what I do. I have been successful at it, but, but there are, I made a bunch of choices that put a fine already that put a large financial ceiling on what I'm, what I'm doing in a way that I'm totally good with because to break through that ceiling would require me to do things that I'm not comfortable with that I don't think are right. So I have like a little note card on my desk. So I, I, it's, in, it's what's unusual about what I do is I write about this ancient philosophy that I did not create, that I don't have any ownership of, and that I don't see myself as adding anything new to, but as as explaining and popularizing and uh, making accessible. That's what I feel like I'm good at doing, yes. right? I'm not I'm I not tried breaking. to read Marcus Aurelius and I couldn't, but I've read your books and well, they're super helpful. That's what, that, you, what you just described is me succeeding at what I set out to do. So that means a lot to me, more than 
selling lots of copies or getting a large advance. That's what I had an experience with Marcus Aurelius's meditations that touched me personally. And I thought, I want to give people that experience that, that they couldn't get by me just saying, read this book, right? And so I have a note card on my desk and it says, am I being a good steward of stoicism? Yes. So Perfect. the videos that I make, like there's videos I could make that I know would do better than the videos I am making. I don't make those videos because I don't think it's appropriate. It's not what I want to do. It's not what gets me excited. I could have people on my podcast or I could write my books in a certain way or I could sell things or price things at different ways that would allow me to make more money but would not be being a good steward of this thing that I I wouldn't say I was entrusted with because no one gave it to me, but that it has fallen in my lap. And so I think about this with like who makes the products that I make? Where what where is the factory, right? How much am I charging? What am I what is the pitch, right? Like am I am I uh hitting triggers that manipulate people into doing what I want or am I just persuading them to do something that's good, right? Like there's all these ethical questions about how one does what they do, not simply what they do and how much they're trying to do, but but how you do what you do. And I think that's a really important part of the barometer because you could do things that make you more successful, that make you more well-known, but you're eroding your sense of self in the process. You're eroding your ability to look in the mirror and go, I'm proud of who I am and what I do. And I think that's a, that's a short-term trade-off with real long-term consequences. Let's look at it in terms of the um, building a YouTube channel is yeah. a great example since we've both done that. So uh, before we started rolling, we were talking about audience capture yeah. and how quickly you can become a servant to the algorithm. Or a parody of yourself. Or a parody of yourself. Wow, really well said. Um, I have frustrated my team three times now as I've moved from phase one of mindset to phase two and now into phase three, because it, it really does like the algorithm gets confused. Who are you making content for? And, um, in any one time, the headline and thumbnail that we might've created, especially as we moved into, uh, phase three, um, it became very easy as I became truly obsessed. Like I, I'm not faking in any way, shape or form. I think we are going through the most disruptive time since World War II. And I think most people are gonna get caught off guard and they are going to get left behind. And there is gonna be a tremendous wealth transfer as the new world order um, takes place. And whether that's a rising China, whether that's a move to Bitcoin, whether it's AI taking over, whatever. All of these things together, I, I am, I see myself in the following way. I cobbled together a bunch of ideas that ended up being Taoism meets Stoicism, basically. Mm -hmm. And through business was like, oh, this is how you take control of your life. And in doing that, I realized, oh, when I, the so I taught a business course for a while in Impact Theory University called Business Decision-Making. The reason that I taught that course, even though it's the worst title of all time, is because um, what people think they need is the $100 million copywriting yeah. course. <laughs> but the reality is if you wanna be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to solve novel problems. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Like that. that's life, man. Yeah. So what 
what is impact theory, the show, what is impact theory, the video game that we're working on, all of it. It, it is trying to teach people the set of ideas that will allow them to solve novel problems, not just problems that they've never encountered before, problems no one has encountered before, sure. like AI. Yeah. So anyway, in, in building up my YouTube channel and moving into phase three, we were like, every title was negative and they were crushing. Yeah. And in any one, I was like, yeah, that actually is my feeling on that. I'm, I'm worried about this, that, or the other. And then as I stepped back and looked at my channel, I was like, oh, it's, it's like really making me uncomfortable that it's just getting so negative. Yeah. And so you get into the, if it bleeds, it leads thing. So how does one avoid falling prey to that? How do you not become a parody? How do you not become audience captured? How do you not become a servant to the algorithm? Yeah, every once in a while I'll write something, I'll send it to the email list and, and someone will be like, why did you say this? You must've known this was gonna piss people off or you know, why did you have to get political or why did you have to touch this you know, third rail or whatever? And, and sometimes I reply, you know, if I'm feeling cheeky about it, I, I go, I didn't build this audience to not say what I think. I built the audience by saying what I think, what I think needs to be said. And that's what I have to keep doing. Otherwise, I don't have the audience. The audience has me, mm. right? Like, do I make YouTube videos uh, or does YouTube make me make videos? You know, like I make what I'm interested in, what gets, what lights me up, what excites me. Obviously, I then think about what is the way to, to have that reach the most people, mm -hmm. what is the way that um, will, you know, not be forgotten or missed. Like you, you do have to understand marketing and promotion and public relations and just presentation. Like an author that goes, don't judge a book by a cover, by its cover. That's an author who doesn't sell very many books because like the cover is there to be judged, right? That's what its job is. And the thumbnail and the title and you know the description. These are these are rules of a medium or of a platform. You don't have to be a slave to them, but you do have to understand them. And so I, I kind of I try to start with what lights me up, with what's exciting to me, what I think needs to be said, and then then I try to translate it in the medium that it is. I do you know sometimes I'll find myself I was being emotional, I was reacting to something in the news. I was being petulant or judgmental about something. And when I go back and do the edits or read it for the podcast, I go, this is probably more incendiary than it needs to be, right? And so I can adjust that so I'm not needlessly alienating people that I wanna reach. Um, but then once I have confidently done that, I also have a, a wall around me that makes it so I am, insulated to a degree from the feedback. I'm not reading the comments. The emails are not going to my inbox. I'm not constantly refreshing to see how many retweets or likes or comments something got because that's gonna mess with my barometer, with my compass. Like those people don't know what I'm trying to do. Those people aren't consuming the whole of my work. They're just getting this one snapshot of a thing. And what ultimately matters is my sense, my, the path that I'm on, not all these people crisscrossing me or not what other people are doing. That's the other mistake. It's not even a feedback that you've gotten. It's you're doing this. And then you look over here and you see someone else is doing it differently. And then you go, should I not be doing this? Should I be doing that? And one of the things I'm a big heavy metal fan, um, a, a quote that I heard 
very early in my career that's sort of formative for me, the lead singer of Iron Maiden, which is this unique band that that makes kind of weird music that's never been super popular, um, never been sort of of the moment, but somehow is they've sold a hundred million records. They tour Whoa. all over the world. They're they're almost fifty years into this as a band, totally sort of independent, own their shit. Um, he said, you know, like he said, we have our field. And he said, you can only plow one field at a time. So it doesn't matter what the neighboring farmer is doing on theirs. Right. And so if you go, yeah, it doesn't matter that other people are doing it this way, or these people are doing this way. How, how do I think it should be done? What's working for me? What are best practices? And then I leave everyone else to what they're doing. You know, like, I can't look at what some other author, even if they're a friend of mine, even if I really respect their work, I can't go, but but Mark Manson sold this many copies the first week. I mean, we write totally different things in a totally different style. We put out things at different times, right? Um, the idea that that I would judge myself against him is not fair to me or to him. And so you got to be able to go, this is what I was trying to do. This is the long-term race that I'm running and I tune out everything else. How, how do you frame that? And I'll, I'll give you some context of where, what I'm trying to get to. Um, I want to be the greatest that ever lived at whatever I approach. And I have the receipts to back up that I'm very, very, very good at what I do, Yeah, but I'm not the best at anything. And so before me is the temptation to think less of myself because I'm not Elon Musk or because I'm not Joe Rogan. There's always somebody who isn't a little ahead of me. They're way ahead of me. And so I realize that I'm, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things so far, my career, while impressive from somebody that hasn't achieved what I've achieved, it's going to be forgotten. And so th that requires me to do framing of my pursuits. So now I think I have the bulletproof way around it, but I'm very curious to know what you do. I mean, first off, it's all going to be forgotten. Everyone is going to be forgotten. And if you aren't, it doesn't do you any good, right? Mark Surios in Meditations, he goes, remember, you won't be able, you won't be around to enjoy your posthumous fame. And he says, it's also worth pointing out the people in the future will be the same idiots that are alive now, right? Like different idiots, but the same, right? And so the idea that you have to create this monument of greatness to impress people in the future, to last the longest, to have the most is a false race. So what I think about is I don't go, hey, does Elon Musk have more money than me? Has insert author sold more books than me? is so-and-so married to a more beautiful person than me? Um, you know, is, does so-and-so have a nicer house than me? I think I was dealt a hand. I was, I was born to certain parents at a certain moment in time with certain, you know, unique DNA, with unique interests. I've had unique experiences. I was drawn to a unique lane. And the vast majority of that stuff was not in my control. What is in my control is did I get the most out of that hand that it was possible to get out of that hand, right? 
Elon Musk was born to a dad who owned an emerald mine. Were you born to a dad that had an emerald mine? You know, were you born with his natural genius at science or math, right? A, a whole bunch of things. So it's it's insane that you would be comparing yourself to this person, not just because you started at different places, like you didn't start at the same finish line, uh, you didn't start at the same starting line, but you're also aiming at different finish lines, right? And so I, what I think about, what I think the race is, it's to realize your potential. It's to make the most out of what you have. So I think success is, or you think about your tombstone, it's like, he did everything he could with what he had, you know? And you have, you know what I mean? Like, are you going to compare yourself against someone who has a bigger podcast, but didn't start a multi-billion dollar nutrition company? You know, like that's yes. a, that, but that's insane. That's true. That's insane, right? You're comparing all of what you're, you're comparing part of what you've done to someone who's only done X, right? And that's, that's not what you were optimizing for that's not the race you were running it's interesting i don't get my wife reminds me of that all the time and i don't get any alleviation of my drive from that so here's how i look at it okay so i i make a moral judgment that if you're going to do something you ought to strive to be the you have to strive to be the greatest of all time, knowing that you almost certainly are incapable of becoming that. Yeah. So to avoid that from being a torture chamber, you have to separate out the willingness to, to play at that level from the outcome. Yeah. So one, e even if you become the greatest of all time, it will be a miserable experience. Case in point, look at Michael Jordan, who I don't know him. I cannot say for sure, but I'm pretty sure he's an alcoholic. Like just looking at the jaundice of his eyes and stuff like that, like something. If, I don't know about that, but I think he would stipulate that he got a great gift and a great burden in that greatness. It mm. It's been hard to be him. It's not he, all been sunshine and roses and victory parades. He has a thing that makes him great that he also cannot turn off. Yes. And what I think happens to people like that is they let their their ability to love themselves, to like themselves, be tied up in the outcome. Yes. And so the one thing that I told myself, I learned very early on, the success can't be guaranteed, but the struggle can. Yeah. And so if I reward myself for playing all out, leaving it all out on the field, yeah. trying to make the most of my hand, playing this as well as humanly possible, 100xing my talents, knowing yeah. that I have different limitations that I think of it from a biological standpoint. So I look at Elon Musk, the Emerald Mind, whatever, yeah. like he's just brilliant at understanding first principles, thinking, engineering, et cetera, et cetera. I... I don't like to put limits on myself, but I've never found that engineering comes easily to me. Mathematics yeah. is very much like a black box that I don't understand. So what I, what I judge myself by is, did I show up and sincerely pursue the thing? Yeah. Not, did I get the outcome that I wanted? Not, did I become the greatest of all time? And this is part of why I don't let myself think about legacy. People ask me, what legacy do you wanna leave? I'm like, I don't think about legacy. I think about living right now. I think about yeah. optimizing for fulfillment right now. I think about doing something that positively impacts the lives of other people, partly because of how that makes me feel right. and just 
It feels awesome. I think about my marriage right now. I don't think about like, and this is part of why I don't have heartburn over not having kids. I don't think about like what that will be like beyond me. I don't need my DNA to go into the future. I, I won't lie that I don't think most people should follow me in that path. I think it is a way higher risk path to walk. Sure. I think having kids is better for a whole host of reasons, but because I don't think about legacy, because it's not part of how I value myself, it hasn't been the troubling decision that I think it would be for especially people that can't have kids. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, did you leave anything? Did you hold yourself back in some way? Did you not do something that you could have done because you were afraid, because you didn't think you were adequate, because you didn't want to learn something? To me, those are those are things that are in your control, right? whether you were born in the right moment, whether it was appreciated, you know, when you did it, those are all things that are not out your, uh, uh, in your control. And so what are you gonna focus on? I think that's the ultimate question. And, and I try to focus it on that. I think what's interesting is like, it's, it's inherently subjective who is greatest of all time anyway. Like Michael Jordan doesn't have the most rings. He doesn't have the most wins, you know, he, he has some records, but he doesn't have all the records. He doesn't have the most points, right? There's a whole bunch of facts. So, so you're already saying it's some intangible, ineffable, uh, subjective thing. So the idea that you would compare yourself against other people or that it's somehow a ranking, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a dead end. It's just a dead end. I mean, like, again, we're talking about money. Like if you go, by whether you have the most money in the world. Well, that's not a known fact, right? This is like, what are you relying on? You're relying on the Forbes list or something, which other people are lobbying. Like this is like the, the anecdotes about rich people upset that they're at seven instead of five or the financial shenanigans that they, they show Forbes to try to get higher on the list. Like this is a very well-known thing. Just like my version of that is the bestseller list mm. is not at all representative or a remotely accurate depiction of who is selling the best. Basically the Bible and Harry Potter. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not even a reflection of who is selling the best over a long period of time. It's who's a reflection right now, mm. which is irrelevant the second it happens. And so, you know, deciding what metrics you use to measure whether you're succeeding at what you do is a really critical decision. And then the ability to, once you have made that decision, to tune out the things that are not part of that decision, to be kind to yourself in that regard, to not go, well, I know I said this is important, but I'm insecure because so-and-so has more. You know, that that's that's a recipe for misery. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. 
The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Why'd you have kids? If the point isn't to be remembered, if you know you can't enjoy your posthumous fame or the posthumous love of your children, yeah. why make such a sacrifice? I don't. I don't necessarily see it as a sacrifice. Uh, what? In in the sense that, like, what it's cost me isn't that meaningful to me. Like, I still get to do all the things that I like to do, um, and I also get this wonderful experience that's opened me up in so many ways, that's challenged me to get better in so many ways, that's forced me to be responsible both to and for something. Um, I just I just haven't experienced any part of it. And this could change. I mean, my kids are young, but I haven't experienced any part of it that hasn't been an, a net positive. And the things that I lost were things that were not actually that important or I wasn't really doing anyway. So to me, the the meaningful thing about having kids is the opportunity it presents for you to give what you didn't get, to be better than the people or the generation that came before you, to, to try to make someone, uh, a you know, a, a a good, decent, contributing member of society is, uh, you know, a profoundly meaningful and difficult and heart wrenching thing. But it's just, it's just been incredibly rewarding and and beneficial in all these ways. When you think about uh, stoic life or putting together a philosophy that's going to allow, because ultimately, all of these philosophies are about the self. Society becomes downstream of the self, which I think is really important. Is a big thing I want to get across to people. Um, where does kids fall in that? Is that a, an intentional thing that you think most or everybody should do? Like, how do you craft that that well made life? There was this Stoic named Hierocles who said, you know, every person is born self interested, born selfish. You care about yourself. You care about surviving. You care about advancing. And then he said, that's like sort of the first circle, the first ring. And then there's the ring of your family members, your offspring. There's the people who live near you, the people who look like you. You know, there's your country. There's the the continent you're on. There's these sort of concentric circles that get bigger and bigger. And he said, the work of philosophy of life is about pulling these outer rings inward, right? About caring about and contributing to more and more as you go. And I, I've, I found that to be really meaningful and purposeful that, yeah, you have this inherent selfishness, this biological urge towards self-preservation and self-advancement. And you could build your life around that, I guess. I don't think that works out super well. I don't think that gets you where you want to go. The decision to have kids or to be a, 
there's there's many ways to to sort of have a family, right? Um, they they don't have to be your biological children. They don't have to be children at all, right? But the decision to go like these are my kin, and then to also expand the definition to expand the circle outwards to include more and more to include animals to include nature to include unborn generations. That is is. The work of Stoicism, and it's that's where this key virtue of justice comes in. Like you owe something to those people, to that future. Um, that's kind of how I think about it. What do we owe them? To leave it better than you found it. You know, have you heard that Greek expression: uh, "A society is great when men plant trees in shade they will never know." You know. Did you kick the can down the road or did you plant a tree that would make things better for the future? I, I kind of think about it like that. How do you um, navigate when people don't agree on what a better future looks like? So you've got somebody like Elon Musk who wants to go to Mars and they think interplanetary species, absolute must. Uh, then you have other people that are like, how the fuck can you justify thinking about going to Mars when we have issues to solve here on planet earth. We got people starving to death and you're yeah. spending billions of dollars trying to get us to another planet. What the hell? I think one thing we have figured out, this is why we live in a free market capitalist system. It's the, the worst, best system is that uh, you, need a, you need a portfolio theory. You need a lot of people working on what lights them up mm -hmm. on what they think the solution is. And that collective distributed uh, process or collaboration is the way that we have breakthroughs, the way that we solve problems. The top-down singular person knows what's best for everyone. The central planning authority has solved it, is, uh, has not worked well historically, right? And so I, if that's what he thinks he should be doing, that's what he should be doing, you know? Um, and if uh, you think you know, raising money to distribute malaria nets in Africa is the best way to alleviate human suffering. And you have a talent or affinity for doing that. Like, that's what you should be doing. And uh, I know what I feel like I should be doing. And I hope everyone can figure out what they think they should be doing. And that's what we need everyone to be doing. That's the only way you can screw up is by doing the opposite of what you deep down know what you should be doing or you don't do anything you feel like you don't have a person you know you do i believe it's a that. great quote along those lines i forget who said this but ask not what the world needs ask instead what makes you come alive because what the world needs is more people who've come alive that's right i thank my students a lot uh, in impact theory university with that line, like, yeah. you know, I'm just so grateful that they come there to invest in themselves, that they're trying to find that thing that, that lights up their day and that they spread that. Now, what do you think about the divide in the country where we're getting the sense of like, no, 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 the way I think is right. The way you think is wrong. And there's like this real sense of othering. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's probably always been there. I think it, that's why we have a political system that makes it very hard to get an overwhelming majority, right? And what that's supposed to force is compromise, right? It's supposed to form, it's supposed to 
uh, create the need for coalitions and compromising. And it's supposed to create a system that doesn't stagger to the left when you have a Democratic president and stagger the opposite direction to the right when you have a Republican one, but that for all the the changes, it it actually stays pretty stable. And I think the founding fathers were very, very genius. Like gridlock is a feature and not a bug of the American system. Uh, and I think you you saw during COVID the flaws of the American system, but then over a long enough timeline, we did pretty good, you know? Um, sure, it was easier for China to do certain things, but then it made it harder for them to do other things. And and, and I, I've come to understand that that's how the American system works and that there has basically been no moments excepting a few very grave crises where it ever really worked in the sense that like, it's easy to pass laws, easy to make changes, easy to reimagine and change things. It's not supposed to be that way. Um, now, there are, I think, some very real problems, and we are facing uh, a real erosion of democratic norms. I, I mean that in the not in the political party sense, but in the sort of fundamentally how mm -hmm. the system's supposed to work and what some of the unwritten rules are and... Uh, what good faith in that system is, even when one has disagreements that I'm worried about and alarmed by, for sure. Um, but I also have some faith that over a long enough timeline, it corrects. Why did Socrates hate democracy? Socrates lives in the time of 30 tyrants, right? Basically, <clears throat> Athens is at war with Sparta. Sparta ultimately wins this war. Uh, it's a topsy-turvy time. It didn't have the evidence that we have now of not just the flaws of the other system, but the sort of long-term durability and viability of the democratic system, that it is the best worst system, you know? Um, there is something fundamentally crazy about democracy that says, hey, everyone, brilliant people and idiots, deserve an equal say in how things go, right? That, that's crazy. Um, I'm writing about Harry Truman right now in the book that I'm working on now. And like- Really? Harry Truman is basically a regular ass dude from small town America that ended up the president of the United States. And it was a remarkable test of the system. Also a remarkable test of virtue. This is a guy who Why had- was a, he the remarkable test? How did he become president? I mean, he's a, he basically was county judge. Then he ran for Senate. He's kicked upstairs. He basically is anointed to the Senate by a corrupt political boss who was tired of dealing with Truman's honesty at the local level. He thought, if I can get this guy out of Missouri, he will cause less problems for me <laughs> than if he is here. So Truman gets sort of kicked upstairs to the Senate. He has a couple sort of moderately, you know, unremarkable moments. And then he's picked as FDR's running mate. He never went to college had no formal training in anything. He's a veteran in World War I. He's still paying off his debts from a failed business. 
when he's elected to the U.S. Senate, um, which he felt honor bound to continue to pay. He never takes a bribe, never is engaged in any sort of the corruption of the time, doesn't cheat on his wife. He's just a, an honest dude. It's pro FDR probably picked him because he thought he wasn't a threat. Mm. And then FDR suddenly died. And now this guy is not only the president of the United States, he is the sole possessor of atomic weapons at the most pivotal moment in U.S. history. That's insane. That's insane. That, like the fact that Marcus Aurelius is, uh, you know, the emperor and it's, uh, the, it's not what I just described to you about Harry Truman is, is not that much more or less insane than let's just pick the firstborn son of the current leader to be, you know what I mean? Like right. the, it's insane. It's insane. Um, and yet it seems to work less bad than the other ways of doing it. Um, but I just think it's important when we look at the ancients and we look at their political theories, like these were people who not yet come to the conclusion that we didn't come to here in America until the 1860s, that it's wrong to own another human being or that women are equal to men, which took like another hundred years, right? Or that, um, you know, people should be able to say what they think without fear of consequence or that people should be able to do what they want to do with their life. Like, that you shouldn't have to do what your dad did, that you should be able to move where you want and live how you want and love how you want. These were, it's important that we realize, although the philosophers sometimes hinted at, these were like hard won, hard fought innovations. Like we didn't become a true multiracial democracy in this country. And I know we're not technically a democracy, but we didn't become anything close to a one person, one vote, you're free to do and live and be how you want until the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And if you were a gay person, you know, much later than that, we're talking like within the last 10 years, could you legally marry the person that you want to marry? Or within the last 20 or 30 years, have access to certain kinds of birth control or, uh, move and live how you want. Like these, the, this is an ongoing process. It is a procession of torch passing and breakthroughs and changes um, that that is shockingly new and continues. And it's not necessarily a straight line. I mean, we stagger backwards and fall, you know, it's, and I think if we see it that way, it also becomes imperative for us to be engaged and involved. Mm. I was just going to ask, that's sort of my, the, the culminating thing. So um, part of the takeaway that I have with Socrates and why he hated democracy was they voted to kill him. So that's obviously you're, you're going to uh, have certain beef with a system that can do that where it can create a little bit of mob rule, especially if it's a true one-to-one -one democracy versus like a representative democracy, yeah. like what we have. Um, so, as far as I can tell, his beef was like, wait, if you're going to vote on something, you need to be educated on that. So if I'm right and culture is downstream of the individual, what, you know, going back to sort of what is that ideal life? What do we educate ourselves on? Is education sort of a moral obligation? How do we make sure that that's done well? 
Well, in the teaching of philosophy and the propagation of myths and stories and morals was the one thing that they got pretty well in the ancient world, you know? And that tradition, that great conversation, I do feel has atrophied, you know? We don't study the greats. We don't know these myths. You know, when you would have, when you would watch soccer, when you would watch Shakespeare, you would understand he was borrowing from Plutarch. And when you would listen to Lincoln, you would know that he's alluding to and making references to lines and ideas from Shakespeare and from the Bible. There was a common set of texts and ideas and shared assumptions. Mm -hmm. um, now, was it predominantly sort of Western and Christian? Um, yes, and there were benefits to that in the sense that everyone was on the same it's page, common. but it was also insufficient and artificially constrained in that Eastern wisdom was uh, either suppressed or unknown, right? And the stories were overwhelmingly male and overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly, you know, X, Y, or Z. And it's it's actually wonderful that it's expanded because we have more to choose from and more to learn. But if there isn't a shared sense, if there isn't a shared familiarity with a core set of ideas or principles, it does make it hard to have both the individual barometer and the collective social barometer. Yeah, I think this is a big part of what we're going through now. This is a big part of why I asked the starting question is, you know, in, in a lot of ways, what Tate represents is the hyper fragmentation, the breakdown of any sort of shared morals or sense of how things should be. And when that all begins to break down, then you get this unmooredness of people not knowing what they should be aiming at. We not having a common sense of things ought to be this way. And part of what I worry about in the modern world is, is that velocity of ideas that I was talking about. So when you get a breakdown of religion, which again, I'm not religious, but I yeah. recognize the danger sure. in not having shared narratives. Yeah. So you get a uh, a world where ideas travel with hyper velocity, they very quickly become sort of cynical takes on, and I don't, maybe there's a name for what you're talking about earlier, but that sense of everything has a name and yeah. by giving it a name and I can put it in a neat little box, I feel like I understand it. But in reality, I've given a headline to something that's actually truly nuanced. And by cramming nuance into a headline, there there's a breakdown of something that I haven't quite wrapped my head around, but that I really worry about. And as somebody who feels like, my lot in life, the hand that I have been dealt is that of Solieri. Do you know the, okay, so my poor listeners have heard me talk about this so many times. Uh, there's a movie called Amadeus, which yeah. is about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. And he had a contemporary, this is a real guy. And Solieri, uh, in the movie anyway, he laments to God. And the fact that you know Mozart, but you don't know Solieri, that, sure. that already sets you up, especially when I tell you that I'm the guy that yeah. you know wants to be the Michael Jordan. Uh, so Solieri laments to God and he says, why have you made me just good enough to realize I'll never be as good as Mozart? Yeah. Why couldn't you have made me bad at music so that I could be like everybody else and just love Mozart right. or be as good or better than Mozart, but to make me just good enough to realize I'll never be as good is like this deeply troubling, dissatisfying thing. And so 
when you get this idea of, okay, there's all this tremendous nuance in the world, we are all grappling with um, trying to understand that nuance. But if you're like me, you're Solieri. And so you're just good enough to realize, I don't know if I can comprehend all of this nuance and I'm cramming things into headlines. And in cramming things into headlines, it becomes easier to hold on to, but it becomes more difficult to navigate the real world, which is truly complicated. And so as I think about this, you know, phase three of how I am really trying to handcraft a life that is fulfilling. I mean, just sure. to, to really put a fine point on it, um, you constantly butt up against reality. And we've talked about a lot of these things. So you're building a YouTube channel. You don't want to become a parody of yourself, but at the same time, you want to get as much reach as humanly possible. So how do you master the algorithm while still maintaining true um, to what you're trying to put out? And for people that don't know, you wrote a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying, which is actually how I came across you. Uh, And it's about media manipulation. And so seeing you, I'm sure, you know, still be a thoughtful marketer, but yet abandon some of those uh, less savory, sure. you know, tactics from your youth. And so- Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yes, very yeah. true. And so anyway, getting back to this this idea of hyper-fragmented, yeah. you've got the breakdown of religion, hyper-fragmentation, uh, you have headline, uh, the headlineification of nuanced complex ideas that manifest as these caricatures of somebody like Tate. Yeah. So when you compare Tate versus Marcus Aurelius, to me, it's cram everything into a headline that's easily digestible in a clip on social media versus a guy that writes meditations, which is him writing to himself yeah. about how to be a better person. And so in the final analysis, for me, it's like all day, every day, I want to go back to this ancient wisdom of Marcus Aurelius to get back into the complexity of what real life is, to get into, from my frame of reference, to get into the messiness of biology, to understand that I have these subroutines, algorithms, I'll call them, running in my own brain that really dictate what the outcome will be of the ways that I move in my life. And if I align them, and look, there are ancient philosophies, whether it's Taoism or Stoicism, those feel like they are somebody going, what are the things that make me feel calm and centered in myself, that I have been good, that I have contributed? And the reason I harp on the biology is the biology is the reason you want to do those things. Yeah. Because if it even, even if you look at, at a normal house cat, it will toy with a creature as it kills it. And then maybe it eats it, maybe it just leaves it for dead. Like, can you imagine like going and doing that to like a, a seven-year-old and like, oh, I'm just going to break his arm and like drag yeah. him around for a while. And then uh, like when I get bored or he's dead or whatever, like, dude, you'd be the biggest sociopath in the world. And so knowing that there are like, we're, we're there, but for the grace of God go I, right? So we're, we're like one minor step removed away from all that stuff. Yeah. And so anyway, getting into the complexity of a life we'll live, knowing that you have these biological drives and understanding that we're living in a time that's pushing us towards an Andrew Tate, when in reality, we need to find a way to get back to these anchored things that are in alignment with this this sort of long arc of life, being a good person, being in alignment with your biology. 
Well, what I would say to someone who's young and sort of trying to figure out their place in the world, someone who's sort of dissatisfied, disillusioned, feels like the past generation is filled with hypocrites, it feels like the system is breaking down, feels like the certain truths aren't true anymore, and you want purpose and you want meaning and you want guidance and you're trying to figure out who you should be and who you should listen to, like some flashy random person on the internet uh, is probably not it. What you need to know is that the smartest people who have ever lived have been asking themselves those same questions. And that all the things that you're feeling about this moment in time are not as modern or as rooted in technology or shifts or the economy as you think they are. This is what human beings have been wrestling with since the advent of consciousness, right? Since we crawled out of the trees and the bushes or the water or whatever, and we're like, what? You know, we have been wrestling with these existential questions about who we are, what we do with this life we're given, and what does it mean to die? What does it mean to suffer? And what does it mean that people suck and are awful and are evil, that, that the good guys don't always win? you know, that it feels like we're in decline. This is, that that is what they were talking about in the Renaissance. That's what they were talking about in the American Civil War. That's what they were talking about at the founding of America. That's what they were talking about in the Dark Ages. That's what they were talking about in ancient, in ancient Rome, in ancient Greece. As long as there have been humans, there have been people asking these questions. And the great philosophical texts, the great thinkers, have so much to teach you and you should avail yourself. Seneca says, you know, only those who, who make time for philosophy are truly alive. He says, and only they are truly wise because he says they annex into their own life all of the wisdom of the past, right? Like you are struggling with these questions. You're not going to figure it out by yourself. And, and if you do, it'll take your whole life. You, you want to learn from the experiences and the struggles of others. And someone who's trying to get you into a pyramid scheme or telling you that it's going to be easy or that it's somebody else's fault, like that also existed in the ancient world. They called them demagogues, right? There were tyrants in the ancient world. There were liars in the ancient world. There were sophists in the ancient world, which were a kind of philosopher who could make clever, persuasive, attractive arguments, but they would argue one thing to one group and then the next day argue a totally different thing to a different group. And that this, this battle between truth and what you want to hear, what's easy and what's hard, you know, the higher self and the lower self, this is the battle of the human experience. And that philosophy is there to guide you towards dealing with that and towards human flourishing or the good life or any, no so to say, living in accordance with nature, like what you were meant to do, how you were meant to be. That's what philosophy is about. And that's what I try to popularize and, and make accessible in my work. But Really what I'm doing is going, check out what these people said. Don't ignore the noise that's happening around you right now. Ignore, you know, the attractive, flashy, controversial thing right now and, and go to what's timeless and true and been, you know, wrestled with for centuries. Well said. Have you seen the TV show, The Bear? Of course. 
So I'm not surprised you say, of course. Uh, that to me really represents stoicism. The sequence, I think if you're not with me yet, you will be when I, are you caught up? I only watched the first season. Oh my God, no wonder you're not convinced yet. All right, watch season two. Um, Without giving away the episode, I'll I'll abstract it. So I've often been asked, uh, hey, Tom, I'm really struggling with my kid. Like they're 15, 16. They're just not doing anything productive with their life. Like, what do I do? And I'm like, look, there's only one way that I can think of to get somebody who's truly adrift and get them back on track. You're going to have to kidnap them. You're going to have to take them to a desert island or whatever, put them with a group of people whose respect they want to earn, and then they will conform to the group. And if you can, for people that don't know The Bear, The Bear is an amazing show about... uh, the best chef, basically the best sort of young living chef. He is at a three-star Michelin restaurant and his brother, this is all the setup to the story, so I'm not giving anything away. His brother passes away and uh, leaves him his like sort of shitty local town restaurant. Yeah, a a family sandwich shop. Yeah, in like a terrible neighborhood in Chicago. And so he decides to go back and run it. And- he then brings with him the discipline of an ultra upscale fancy restaurant, which you see and you're like, whoa, this is like really militaristic. And, but it starts dealing with discipline and, and all of that. And dude, season two is going to blow you away. If you like season one, you are going to love season two. Um, what you wrote a book called discipline is destiny. Yeah. Why? What you're talking about there is what I mean when I say discipline is destiny. It's not that discipline will make you great. It can, right? If you are disciplined and dedicated and you work hard and you have high standards, it radically increases your chances of being successful. But what true discipline does, true mastery, self-command does, is it makes whatever you're doing great while you're doing it, right? So there's a there's a story about a you know this this um, successful general who gets too powerful in Athens, and so they punish him by the the people that fear him punish him by making him like head of the sewer system, and this is supposed to degrade and humiliate him, and he ends up taking to the job and he gives it everything he has and he cleans up the whole system, gets it operating properly. And then then it becomes this highly coveted position, right? Because it's a culture of Mm. efficiency and effectiveness. And people see the effect that it has on the health of the city and all this stuff. And basically the lesson, the philosophical lesson was, you know, a a job doesn't bring dignity to a person. A person brings dignity to the job, right? And so how you do anything is how you do everything. What discipline is, is not a secret or a shortcut to success, although it is those things. Discipline is the end unto itself. I work very hard every day on my books, on getting better as a writer. I think that contributes to their success, but it's also great and meaningful and why I get out of bed every day, independent of whether it leads to any outcome at all. Because I could get hit by a bus tomorrow, but what matters is when I show, did I show up today? And was the thing 
when I saved the draft and was done with it, was it the best it could be with the time that I had for it? That's what discipline is to me, uh, or discipline at its most meaningful and important. It's not, oh, I eat well and I work hard, you know, or whatever. That, that, that's part of it, but real discipline is that. It's the command of oneself. Can it be built? Of course. Uh, certainly we know it can atrophy, can be lost, right? So we've see, we see it happen. You can sense it in yourself. If you- I can't sense it in myself, Ryan. You take that back right now. <laughs> uh, you can see it in the before and after pictures of just about anyone that's ever done anything. So yeah, of course. Course. I think are there is there a natural affinity for it? Sure. It's more impressive if the if it isn't how you were mm. built or how you were wired. So how do you build it? Day by day, minute by minute, action by action. Aristotle says, you know, virtue is not any different than being a builder. You become a builder by building things. You become generous by being generous. You become strong by doing things that require strength. You know, you, you become disciplined by making disciplined decisions. Little ones, which lead to big ones, which add up in a big way. So what do you say to somebody in this modern world? They're doom scrolling. They've got six OnlyFans subscriptions. They're, you know, on porn instead of building relationships. For people that are struggling, um, how do they pull out of that? How do they get it going in the right direction? I think you start small. You start with something. Uh, you start with something. You know, I'm gonna stop this. This like this is why I think you know sober January is so great. Just like don't try to quit alcohol as a whole, which you may need to do, but I'm gonna quit for one month, and then I'm gonna first learn that I'm capable of quitting for a day, and two days, and three days, and four days, and five days until I've got a streak of thirty days, and then I'm also gonna get the evidence, the information that says, hey, I feel better when I don't do this thing. I'm better at X, Y, and Z when I don't do this thing. Now, obviously, look, there are certain people who have addictions or you're at rock bottom, you gotta quit cold turkey right now, you don't have time for a thing. But I do think there's something about starting small and building, learning, once again, the power of cause and effect and the power that you have to bring about cause and effect. And oftentimes when you see someone who is broken apart, who is failing, who is struggling, they have lost their faith in those, in that thing. You know, they have lost, they, they, it's been a long time since they had any evidence of their own human agency, their own power over their own life. And you got to start by reestablishing that somewhere, however small. I love it. Where can people follow you and drink up more of this wisdom? Daily Dad is the parenting thing that I write every day. So you can go, you can get that for free at Daily Dad or listen to it as a podcast. And then the Daily Stoic is the same thing, free every day. Goes out to 600,000 people all over the world every single morning. And then uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, we're at Daily Stoic. I love it. Yeah. All right, everybody. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.